And I actually was trying to think of movie um, illustrations, but I've, I've recognized I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I've figured out over the last few weeks that movie illustrations don't always work well for me. Um, so you just let that go wherever you want it to go there in your mind for a minute. So a literary tragedy um, is defined as a story that takes place usually around a, a noble character, as some definitions say. Um, one definition says that this character is the epitome of bravery. So this character who could be called the epitome of bravery is often seen as someone who struggles against external forces and internal character flaws. And as they work through this struggle, in the end, it's costly to them. It costs them quite often their position, their power, sometimes their family, sometimes their own life. So this archetype is called a tragic hero in many of these stories. Is that what we have in Saul when we come to 1 Samuel 31? Do we have a a tragic hero? Do we have a hero who's succumbed to external challenges and that's brought about his undoing? Or do we have here an element of tragedy, no doubt, but another chapter in God's redemptive story, where God is working out his purposes and carrying out his plans to raise up his eternal anointed king, with each of those names capitalized, eternal anointed king. And so while we should, when we read this passage, feel some level of sorrow, some level of sympathy, you can't read it and not feel that in some way. We should not read it and see it as an account where God is absent or silent, because that is not the case. In fact, I'd invite you, before we look at 1 Samuel 31, to turn further in your Old Testament to 1 Chronicles. And listen to the chronicler give us the same account that we're going to read in 1 Samuel 31, but he gives us a little more detail, he gives us a little more commentary on what it is that's taking place there. It's a relatively short chapter, so just turn to First Chronicles. I don't. If you're using a pew Bible, what page is that? Has anybody found it? What? Oh, I'm sorry, ten. You do need that, don't you? I've seen that look before in Susan. First Chronicles ten. So it says, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword, and he fell upon it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. Look at verse 6. Thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all of his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. 
The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to their people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the sons and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak of Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, verse 13 and 14 gives us commentary. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, in chapter 2, you'll remember Hannah prayed. And it's a powerful prayer. And it is an outline for the rest of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. And in that prayer, I'll just read a portion of it. In verses 3 and 4, she prays, talk no more. So very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. Verses six and seven, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. God is a God of reversals. And what we have throughout 1 Samuel so far, and I'm going to take just a minute before we even look at 1 Samuel 31, to just remind us of the contrast, because that's a critical thing to keep in mind. The contrast that we've seen as we've looked through 1 Samuel. Because the whole book is a study in contrast. It begins with a contrast between two women. women. Remember? Penina and Hannah. 1 Samuel began with a proud, fruitful woman who looked down upon a barren woman with no children. One woman gloated in her situation, Penina, and the other was broken in hers, and she prayed. And God reversed the situation. We go further in, and we see two priests right there in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Two different priests. We find a priest named Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And what we see there is Eli described as old and heavy, spiritually dull, insensitive to God's word, and parentally he's inept. The text tells us that. So God raises up little Samuel and calls him out. Samuel hears the word of the Lord. Eli doesn't recognize it, not initially. And what ends up taking place is Israel is soundly defeated in battle, and Eli's sons are killed in battle, just as God said they would be. Eli falls off of his seat when he hears the news that Israel has been defeated and the ark captured, and he breaks his neck and dies. God reverses the situation. There's also a contrast given between, I think, two ways of worship. The worship of a false god or the worship of the one true God. 
And what we see unfolding in that next little section there is when the Philistine army defeats Israel and defeats them soundly, they capture the ark. And they've got more than they can handle, remember? And they end up passing it from city to city to city trying to get rid of what seems to be a massive curse. But what's important to recognize there is that as they bring that ark and put it like a prize, as they will do with Saul, at least part of him, what happens there is when they bring that and put it into the temple of their god Dagon, Dagon, this massive idol, falls down before the ark, not once but twice, second time with his hands cut off and his head removed. There's a reversal in that situation. Idols and those who worship them do not fare well in the Bible. And we will see that continue to unfold. And so then there's this contrast between two kings when Saul is introduced. And what's interesting is that as God demonstrates his faithfulness on behalf of his people and defeats the enemy, in response to that defeat, Israel comes back and demands a king like the nations. They no longer want to be led by God With this invisible king, they want a king like the nations. And God says yes and gives them a king like the nations. And Saul is chosen, remember? He's head and shoulders above everybody else in stature. He is more handsome than everybody else around them. Physically, he's he's just an impressive specimen. Spiritually, he's a train wreck. Saul has a bad heart. And immediately we see this contrast between his heart and the heart of the man who would come after him. The heart issue with Saul manifests itself pretty quickly when he wins a victory over the Amalekites there in chapter 15 and builds a memorial to himself. Not only does it build a memorial to himself, but then he undertakes the responsibility himself that is only for the priest in offering up a sacrifice. And when he's confronted with that by the priest... He passes off the buck and blames others. Here's what he hears in response to that disobedience. Has the Lord a great delight? I'm reading from 1 Samuel 15 in verse 22. Has the Lord a great delight, as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, the Lord has rejected you as being king. Samuel turns to walk away. Saul grabs the hem of his robe and metaphorically gives us a picture of what is about to happen to him. Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The contrast between these two kings. And the neighbor who is better is smaller. (laughs) He's the runt of the litter, if you will. And yet he has a different heart. Remember Samuel said, don't look at his outward appearance. For the height of his stature, Samuel says, really doesn't matter. God says, I have rejected him, talking about all of David's brothers. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. 
And not only did God choose him because of the heart he had that the Lord had given him, God then confirmed that with the anointing. It says the Lord, the Samuel took the horn of oil in 1 Samuel 16 and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The very next verse says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So we have this contrast, contrast between two women, two priests, two ways to worship, a contrast between two kings. And even in that, we see this contrast later on in the next section, the next chapter. I see it as two different motivations, two different kingdoms to be built. And it's the confrontation between the Philistine giant and the shepherd. This cowering king, I mean this towering just specimen of a giant comes and confronts Israel. And you'll remember that the king who should have been leading them in battle, they wanted a king like the nations who would go out and fight their battles. He is cowering in his tent with the rest of his army. And as Saul cowers in his tent, David the shepherd, the anointed king, goes out confident in God and passionate for his glory. And he says so. That's the whole point. The Philistine giant is wearing scales like the scales of a snake representing evil. And he is armed to the hilt with the best armaments that the world can provide. And David goes out with a sling, but he goes out with a motivation. He goes out with a different heart. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. And that giant ends up face down on the ground with his head in the hands of the anointed one. Do you see a pattern? Do you see this pattern developing? Eli and his sons, ungodly, disobedient, necks broken. The false god Dagon, handless, headless, laying before the ark. Goliath face down in the ground with his head in the hand of God's anointed. The serpent's head will be crushed, Genesis 3. And those who align themselves with the serpent face the same end, Allah Saul. And so we see that God is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And the bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength, and the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. So, 1 Samuel 31 is following the same trajectory that Hannah laid out for us in chapter 2. The exalted are humbled, those who oppose God are put down, and God in his sovereignty and in his purposes is establishing his anointed king. And it's being played out. So here, what we have in chapter 31 should surprise us not. It's inevitable. It's not a surprise. It's, it's, it's just here. And what we have in these, these 13 verses, it, it's, as we look at it, and I'm not going to 
I'm not going to really go through this in a sense verse by verse, although we will read every verse, and I'll touch on that. But, but there's this picture of a son who is faithful to the end. His faithfulness is costly to him. There's a picture of a king who is self-centered to the end. And there's this picture of a people who are kind and grateful, even to the end. But over all of that and underneath all of that is the picture of God who is faithful to his word, faithful to his purposes, faithful to his promises. So follow along as I read this chapter. You're going to hear it just like you did almost in First Chronicles. The Philistines were fighting. Excuse me. Now. Now is an important word. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab and Malachi Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle hard pressed against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. The Philistines were known for their chariots. They were known for their armaments that were used on the flat ground. But Saul flees to the mountains. Those chariots are no good on the mountain, but the archers are. And so he comes within range of the archers. And he is badly wounded by them, it says in verse 3. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Verse 6 summarizes the whole chapter. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all of his men, the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. This is a total rout. Not only is the army defeated on the battlefield, But those surrounding the battlefield and other areas around it flee their homes when they see that their army and their king are gone. And the Philistines move in. So not only do they defeat Israel on the field of battle, they come in and take over their towns and make them their own. The next day, it says in verse 8, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land to the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to all the people. They put his armor in the temple of Asheroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And you'll remember in Chronicles, the chronicler tells her, tells us that they took his head and put it in the temple of Dagon. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, went at night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. So that's the account. Now it's important to understand the time frame here. And now, in beginning there in verse 1 of verse 31, is the same word you see at the beginning of verse 30. 
It's the same word you see later on in chapter 29 in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek. So what's going on here with this? Well, now could actually be translated, commentators tell us, with meanwhile. So there's things going on concurrently. And over the last two weeks, JT and Jason have done a really good job of helping you see some of these events that are going on. But understand that some of these are going on almost at the same time. What we have happening here is that as David and Saul both face difficult situations, both face fierce enemies, both face fierce challenges. David, you saw in chapter 30, returns home to find that the villages have burned and their families have been kidnapped. And David's men don't take that well. They despair. And David is in a tough place. And he turns to the Lord, is strengthened, it says there in verse 6 of chapter 30. He strengthened himself in the Lord and inquired of the Lord what he ought to do. JT said, this gives us a lesson in how we return to the Lord and how we seek the Lord. If we're going through difficult times. Specifically, he said, if if you've found yourself in sin's territory and need to know how to get back to the Lord, this is a good example of what you see in David. Saul, on the other hand... Is an example of what not to do when you face difficulties. All along with Saul thus far, the weapons of the world have been his first go-to, right? What do we know about Saul? He's, he's with his spear constantly. He tries to nail his son against the wall with it. He tries to nail David against the wall with it. He carries it with him. He sleeps with it. The weapons of the world have been Saul's first go-to option. And now the ways of the world are his go-to option, as you saw two weeks ago when Jason led you through chapter 28, 29. Rather. And what happens in that chapter is that Saul displays the reality of his godless heart by seeking godless wisdom and going to a witch or to a medium. And he turns to the pagan world for his directions. Now God has made himself silent to Saul, right? God has cut himself off from Saul, and he remains silent to Saul, except he brings this mysterious message back. And what is that message that Jason brought to your attention from chapter 28? Well, Samuel comes to Saul and says, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? That's an important phrase to remember. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. I'm in chapter 28, verse 16. He's given it to your neighbor, David. Verse 18 says, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And then the detail comes. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. What did Israel want? They wanted a king like the nations. And that's what they got. They got a king like the nations who turned to the ways of the nations. And rebellion is the sin of divination. Rebellion is the sin of turning against God and rejecting God's word and seeking wisdom in the ways of the world. Do not go there, church. Do not go there. 
So in the end, what we have here is Saul is a rebel. He is an enemy of God. And God puts down his adversaries. The Lord has turned against you and they become your enemy, Samuel said. And Hannah said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. So here's the contrast even in this first part. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. I believe what's going on here is while the Philistines are fighting against Israel, David, the anointed king, is taking his role and responsibility as a king and attacking the enemies of God's people and defending the people of God and fulfilling his role and responsibilities as the one who is supposed to go out and act on behalf of God in front of his people. Saul is the self-serving king who, when he finds himself in this situation in chapter 31... He is unwilling even to take responsibility there, except to take a life that's not his to take. You see, Saul has wanted to be sovereign over his own life. And now he seeks to be sovereign over his own death. That is not an example for us to follow. What we have when we first start this passage of Scripture is indeed a tragedy. The men are defeated, their bodies lie on the mountain, and the Philistines overtake Saul and his sons, and Jonathan Abinadab and Malchashua are killed in battle. Three of Saul's sons lose their lives because of the sin of their father. And as they do, what we have here is a picture of the grave consequence of sin. Their death is tragic. It just is as all death is in one way or another. Yet it's important to see God's plan being carried out here. You see, God is providentially here and judgmentally removing the heirs to the throne that in some way could cause division and strife as he carries out his plan to put David on that throne. Here's what one commentator said. God was merciful to Jonathan sparing him the ordeal of having to side with David against his own brothers for the preventing divisions that were surely to follow because they happen amongst people when it comes to a successor. David's way to the crown was being made more clear. God is providentially at work even in the death of these boys. But Jonathan, just think about him for just a second. Jonathan has been faithful He took initiative against the Philistines in chapter 13 when nobody else would, including his father, the king. Remember that? Jonathan has been faithful when he recognized David as Israel's next king. Jonathan showed himself to be faithful as he took sides with David, even against his own father, and in chapter 18 committed himself to David fully. Jonathan has been faithful in his commitment and his consistency to that covenant relationship that he had with David. And he expected to play a role in David's kingdom. He had asked for that and submitted himself to that. And he'd given his own armor and his and the picture, the outward picture of his stepping up to that throne, he gave to David. Jonathan has been faithful. A faithful friend. But he is also a faithful son. And he had been faithful to his father all the way through this in many different ways. And in the end, his faithfulness in the end is exemplary and it's costly. 
Jonathan dies on that hill this day, I believe, part out of God's providence and his purposes, and also because he's been faithful to his father. And he dies for it. I believe one day I'll see Jonathan in heaven. That will not happen with Saul. We have a son who is faithful to the end. We have a king who is self-centered to the end. Here's what I mean by that. There's this constant, clear contrast between David and Saul, right? Saul has continually lived for himself. He has constantly sought his own purposes, his own kingdom, his own throne, even to the cost of killing his own son, which he tried to do. Even to the cost of the marriage of his daughter, which he undermined. Saul has been about Saul all the way through his life. And in the end, what is Saul's chief concern? It's Saul. It's Saul. Run me through, lest they do something to me. Thrust me through, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. Or in some way, take away my honor, you could read into that. And, and, and so what, what we see here is that Saul wants to take center stage in his life and in his death. And, and there's no place for that. Now, rightly so, commentators say, the Bible doesn't give commentary on Saul's suicide here. And that's correct in some sense. There's not a word here about judgment upon it. One commentator said, therefore, we must not shed negative light on it. What? How can you not shed a negative light on this? One, here's, what, here's what one commentator said. To say that Saul brought his demise on himself by infidelity does not mean that God did not bring it on him too. <laughs> We'd be unfaithful to Scripture If all we said was the reason Saul died was he died from his own behavior. So we need to recognize that. What did Chronicles tell us about why Saul died on this mountaintop? Well, one reason was died because he took his own sword and he fell on it. He committed suicide. Another reason that Saul died on this mountain was that he broke faith with the Lord, as the Chronicler tells us. The chronicler also goes on to tell us that the Lord put him to death. So which was it? It was all of those. He took his own life and he would be accountable for that as he had made all of these other decisions prior to that. And he's accountable for those. But the Lord also put him to death as punishment for his sin of rebellion. God had become his enemy because of Saul's rejection And the Lord puts down his adversaries. So Saul died for all of these reasons. And what's interesting is that the book of 1 Samuel ends exactly where the book of 1 Samuel began. With Israel being defeated and Israel's leaders being killed. It starts and ends in the same way. And four times in this chapter, we hear a little word that I think bears great significance. It says that all of those men fell on Mount Geboa. It says that Saul fell on his sword. His armor bearer fell on his sword. And Saul and his three sons 
fell on Mount Geboa, it says in verse 8. The tragedy of this is that the fall brings death. That is tragic. But yet scripture also gives us this picture of death being precious in the sight of God for those that are his. And that death is simply that way that we leave this world and enter into that eternal bliss that God has promised for us. But make no mistake about what you see unfolding here. Saul was concerned about Saul. Saul wanted to be sovereign over his own life. And he took the life that God had given him and meant to be God over it himself and took it himself. That is sin. I don't know how you can paint it any other way. There are seven accounts in the Bible of suicides. Susan and I were talking about this. Jason and JT and I were talking about it before. In no case is it held up as a model or exemplary in any way that is favorable. The only one that's even close to being an exception to that is Samson. And I struggled with whether or not that would be classified truly as a suicide. Samson did say, let the Philistines die with me, is my paraphrase. But there was a righteous purpose behind what he did when he brought that temple down on himself and those Philistines. So I take exception in one way to holding Samson up as a model to the other six. The other six, Judas is included in that. We could go on down the list. This is not an option for the people of God. And Saul is self-centered to the end. What we have here at the next account, starting in verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, is after there's been this rout and this, <laughs> the Philistines come in and move into the town, it says the next day the Philistines came to strip the slain, found Saul and his sons, cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their, to their people. So here is proud Saul Naked and headless. God will bring down his adversaries. And as he lays there on that mountain, stripped and naked, he is vanquished. Everything changes now in chapter 1 of Second Samuel. There is a place for grief and there will be grief from David. We will see that. But this is good news for the Philistines. They send out evangelists. They send out missionaries carrying the gospel that Israel is dead and Saul is dead. I mean, that, that's, that's literally what it says here. They're out and they, they just take this message and spread the good news that Saul is dead and Israel is dead. And in connection to that, the Philistines would say, and their God is dead. And so what probably happened here is they're taking at least Saul's armor and probably his head and just traveling around with a show and tell. This is what happens to those who oppose Dagon. This is what happens to those who come against the mighty Philistines. And it is, we should not miss this, shameful what happens. It's shameful what happens to Saul, and it's shameful what happens to God's reputation in relation to it. 
One commentator said, The sadness of the text is due not merely to the fact that Israel is crushed, but there is deeper sadness in that Yahweh is mocked. Worse than Israel's defeat is Yahweh's disgrace. Sin is costly to Saul and his family, and at least in the short run, to the reputation of his God. It's worth recognizing that. But there are some people, a few, who are concerned, I believe, about the glory of God and concerned about the proper disposal and care and honoring of those bodies, of Saul and his sons. And it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize the connection here. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, this is the high point of Saul's reign. Remember back in chapter 11, there was Nahash the Ammonite who came and threatened Israel and said, if you will punch out your right eye and submit to me, I'll let you live. And they took that to Saul, and Saul did what a king should do. He came and defeated Nahash on behalf of the Ammonites, excuse me, on behalf of those residents of Jabesh-Gilead. And they remembered what Saul had done. And so it says, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done this to Saul, Their soldiers, their valiant men, arose and at great risk to themselves and at great risk to their community, came and took the body of Saul and his sons and buried them properly. And it's just important to note that in the end, there is kindness shown even to Saul by those who remembered what he had done. It's all inevitable. 1 Samuel 31 shouldn't surprise any of us. So what do we take from it? How can we take this this ending and, 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 and make something of it for ourselves in regard to applications? Well, the first is remember the contrast. There's a contrast between two kingdoms and two ways to live that have been played out for us all the way up to the end here. Remember, Jesus stood on that mountain and was tempted by Satan. And Satan said, all of these things I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. He tempted Jesus with position and provision and power. And Jesus said no and turned to God's word in that battle. Saul bought the lie rejected God's word and sought power and prominence and position now for himself and for his name. David's greater son, Jesus, withstood that temptation. So clearly, here's a contrast, guys. Which king are you going to follow? Which kingdom are you going to live for? There are two ways to live. The Bible lays it out for us. Saul and David give us examples of this. God is the loving ruler and creator of this world. He is sovereign over every minute, second, day of our lives. Over our lives and over our death. He is sovereign over that. And we have rebelled. Humanity is in rebellion. Saul is the archetype of that that we see thus far in 1 Samuel. We have rebelled against God, His rule, and His ways in our lives. And God will not let rebellion go on forever. 
He puts down his adversaries in the Old Testament, all the while still extending. I believe with all of my heart that if any point in time in this, Saul had simply cried out and repented and turned to the Lord, God would have heard. Because that is God's character. But he did not. And the picture of the gospel is not the death of Saul and Israel. The picture of the gospel is that God, while he will not let rebellion go on forever, sent his son to die for rebels. So that if we would put our faith and our trust in him, by his love, God lets Jesus take that wrath upon himself. And Jesus defeated sin and death. And he is the risen ruler. And he took death upon himself so that you and I can have life. So which king and kingdom are you living for, church? Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus, in the end, your end will be Saul's. Because God will put down his adversaries. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Secondly, I see in this the application that we can just trust God with his word. We can trust God with his promises of salvation, and we can trust God with his promise of judgment. He had told Saul what would happen. Samuel had confirmed that in detail to Saul, and God was faithful to his word. Brothers and sisters, the adversaries of the Lord will be crushed. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God has therefore exalted him to that highest place. And given you this day, through the power of his spirit, the opportunity to bow your knee to Christ and trust in him as your king, as your redeemer, as your champion. And finally this, God is sovereign over life and death. And he has called us to trust him in both. Just kind of a pastoral application here, and I've thought about this a lot over the last few weeks. While there is no direct condemnation or really no commentary one way or the other here on what Saul does, this is held up for me, at least in my mind, as an example of what happens when we try to take control of our own life. And therefore, a control of our own death. And it is not faith. It is faithless. It is not obedience. It is disobedience. It is not the sin that is unforgivable. But it is not held up as an option for us as believers. I've known a lot of people over the life, over my years of ministry, and you have too. Who've received news similar to Saul. Not the same context. Not a word of judgment. I'm not going there. I'm just saying I have seen brothers and sisters in Christ hear a grave diagnosis. Some with great detail about how long they have left to live. And I have seen them walk in faith and in confidence and in trust every single day that the Lord gives them, trusting Him every step of the way.
And what a beautiful example that is. What a gift that is to the church. What a gift that is to your family. What an amazing way to live out the truth that we are quick to claim that the Lord is my shepherd and he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death, so I'll fear no evil. And we have examples of that church that we can be thankful for. Saul is an example of the opposite. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we walk by faith holding on to the hand of our Savior who has conquered sin and death on our behalf. And we do it trusting Him every step of the way. And it's great to see that happen in the life of a church like this. God is sovereign over our life and over our death. And He has called us to trust Him in both every step of the way. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and thank you today for Jesus. We bless you and thank you for him being the one who comes to give life and give it abundantly. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and he did that in Saul's life. But we thank you that Saul, Lord, is not the end of the story. We thank you that your anointed king is coming to the throne. And we'll see that in the pages that follow. And we thank you that his anointed son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is on the throne today. Thank you, O God, that you are the author of life. And you're sovereign over it and death. And that those who put their faith and trust in you can be confident in your good purposes. In your power and in your presence and in your peace. So, Father, let this word bear fruit in each of our lives, I pray today. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. He endured and he overcame. And the promise that his life and fullness is ours. And we rest in that and we delight in that and we thank you for it in his precious name. Amen.